You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside. M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, and Crimson Davy Thunder. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Ace Tie Pilot, Chuck Wagon Gamer, and Samantha. As well as our newest Commodores, Elias, and Cameron. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. It would be difficult to overstate the effect that the capture of the Ganji Sawai in September 1695 had on the world. That act of piracy against the Mughal pilgrim fleet shook the entire world to its foundations. I mean, already it was a time of strife and conflict and war. There was fierce fighting from America to Vietnam. Anywhere that French forces could be found, they were likely to be engaged by English or Dutch or both forces. Despite what could easily be called a world war, England diverted resources and manpower, and they organized an extensive global manhunt for pirates. Resources and time that could have been put to winning the war, but... Henry Every's piracy threatened everything. The problem is, though, nobody could find them. Fancy was a ghost ship. She was like an apparition that disappeared into the mists of a dark, moonlit sea, never to be seen again. This is episode 232, Timothy Tugbutton and Simon Whifflingpin at the Bank of Aldgate Pump. Of course, the Fancy was not a ghost ship. She was a very real ship, crewed by living men and led by a captain who was 
pretty clever. The last time we caught up with the Fancy was in the Comoros Islands, just northwest of Madagascar. That's where the three ships remaining in the fleet finally got down to the business of splitting up the loot. That's Fancy, Portsmouth Adventure, and Pearl. The Dolphin had been burned at sea a few weeks earlier, and Amity was ashore at St. Mary's. Now, all three of those ships had cargo aboard, but it wasn't yet divvied up equally. Because there were different kinds of plunder. You know, the Pearl, for example, might be full of pearls. Portsmouth Adventure might have nothing but spices and silk, and Fancy might have all of the hard specie, all of the gold and silver. No, that's not how it broke down, but the point is they didn't have time to split it up in equal monetary amounts while they were busy looting the Mughal treasure fleet. You carry whatever you can carry and get it on board one of your ships as fast as possible. But in the Comoros, as they were splitting up their treasure, that's when the men of Pearl, handing Every's men their own share, were accused of clipping coins. This is the event that led to that almost violent encounter between the Fancy and the Pearl. But I'm suspicious that this whole event might be a bit made up. Or maybe misrepresented. It's possible that the men of the Fancy were trying to fatten their own pockets at the expense of the Pearl. That they made the whole thing up and used their superior numbers to just take the cargo from the Pearl Pirates. But it's also possible that this event never happened at all. See, a little bit down the road, the surgeon from the Pearl is going to get picked up by the authorities in Jamaica. He's going to stand trial, but he'll get acquitted. He got off largely because of his entirely believable story about kidnapping and forced servitude, a story that might even have been true but really it was the lack of evidence that he'd done anything wrong. See, he was a surgeon, but he was not a rich man. He had no plot of land, no slaves, just a humble little barber surgery in Kingston. Servicing sailors and farm laborers, he's not the kind of guy who would have a huge cache of silver stashed away somewhere. That surgeon told the court in Kingston that he would have been paid off, even though he had been kidnapped. That was the deal. You have to serve us, but you will get a cut. But Henry Avery took all of their money, so he didn't get anything. But then, a few months later, when several of the crew of the Fancy were on trial in London, the prosecution asked them if this was true and the accused pirates told the court that yes, Captain Every did take all the shares of the Pearl, which was entirely Captain Henry Every's decision. We didn't have anything to do with it. You find him and you've got your culprit. And it is a believable story. Maybe the fancy did take all their money, and maybe this surgeon was just an unwitting participant in their voyage, but I kind of can't shake the possibility that these pirates realized that their old companion had pulled a bit of a con. That maybe he did have a sea chest hidden away in some lonely cove on the coast of Jamaica filled with silver and jewels. 
and that thanks to this pretty believable story, it looked like he was going to get away with it. Now, these pirates were, well, they weren't in great shape, but maybe they realized that maybe he was going to get away with it if they played along. You know, say you and your younger brother were both in trouble for taking some cookies from the cookie jar, but you have chocolate on your fingers. The noble thing to do is to fall on your sword, to take the blame and let your little brother get away with it. The Pearl put in at St. Augustine Bay with virtually no treasure to their name. Now, the men of the Portsmouth Adventure, they did get a share, maybe not as big a share as they had been expecting, but the fancy had a pretty persuasive argument there. I mean, look at all of our big guns and all of these men carrying sabers and pistols. All of those murderous pirates standing on the deck, well, they were the people who went toe-to-toe with the Mughal ship, the men who won that battle. Are you going to tell that crew of violent murderers that you want more of the money that they earned by fighting and bleeding on the deck of the Ganji Sawai? Probably not, but the Portsmouth Adventure still got some money, so they didn't complain too loudly. Now it's about this time that Portsmouth Adventure was blown ashore, and when Fancy took about half of her crew, including Captain Farrow, on board. The best source I've seen on the division of the plunder comes from The Trial of Joseph Dawson, Edward Forsyth, William May, William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks at the Old Bailey for Felony and Piracy, October 19, 1696. Not a catchy title, but accurate. It reads, and it's a transcription, so it reads kind of like a play. It's got their names in front of the quote. Mr. Justice Turton, what number of persons were aboard when the dividend was made? Philip Middleton, about 160. Turton, what might the shares be? Middleton, some a thousand pounds, some six hundred, five hundred, and some less, according as the company thought they deserved. Now that's not the equal shares for equal work that we have come to expect from the pirates. And it gets worse. Middleton goes on to tell the court that he only got one hundred pounds, according to the will of the company, and even that one hundred pounds was stolen by one of the other pirates on board. Now, from other sources, we know that Henry Every actually walked away with two thousand pounds, but we can assume that some of the other officers on board, say Joseph Dawson, Henry Adams, maybe even Joseph Farrow, the captain of the Portsmouth Adventure and the quartermasters of the Fancy, they probably got a thousand pounds each. Beyond that, though, we could only speculate how much any particular pirate got, outside of the testimonies of all of those men on trial. Five hundred a man seems to have been the share handed out to most of the men. There was also hazard pay of a hundred extra pounds to those who were injured. I do, though, wonder what Philip Middleton did to earn only one hundred pounds sterling. Was he a coward in battle? Did he owe somebody money, or was he lying about his share? These are questions about which we could speculate wildly, and many people have. 
there have been no few treasure hunters in the west country of England, with metal detectors in hand searching for the buried treasure of these fancy pirates. Regardless, once the plunder was distributed, Fancy sailed off into the sunset. And what happens after gets kind of muddy. What we have is a trail of clues put together after the fact, though they do seem to paint an accurate picture of what the Fancy was up to after the raid. Some of the pieces could be missing, some of the pieces could be incorrect. The problem is, Henry Avery and his officers all used aliases, and they did so mostly in non-English ports, so the men who met them had virtually no idea that these even could have been the pirates. But if history is a set of lies agreed upon, this is the agreed-upon lie for Henry Avery and the Fancy. Their next stop was the French territory to the southeast of Madagascar. There were three primary French settlements in the region, but Fancy paid a visit probably to only one of them. There was Port Dauphin on the southeast mainland coast of Madagascar. We'll be seeing a lot more of Port Dauphin in the future, but it's likely the Fancy did not stop off there. Instead, the pirates stopped off at Il Bourbon. Now, they didn't call the island Il Bourbon or even Bourbon Island. They called it Saint Apollonia. That's the old Portuguese name for the island, but we don't use either today. Instead, we call it Reunion Island. The name La Reunion came about in the French Revolution, about a hundred years after the pirates visited. But we're going to go ahead and call it Reunion Island from here on out, and we're going to be seeing a lot of Reunion Island. It was something of a pirate haven in the Indian Ocean, not on the level of Libertalia at Madagascar, but not far off, and their proximity was not an accident. You know, the English have this reputation in regard to piracy, and, to be fair, they earned it. But the French are almost as bad. But they don't seem to have the same reputation. Maybe that's just my bias as an English speaker, but I think it's because the French stuck a bit closer to the privateer mold. You know, by and large, they avoided targets that would cause serious diplomatic troubles, and usually, though not always, they avoided other French ships. But I think the real reason that they never earned quite the same reputation is because they don't have a Nassau. No French pirate republic, and... To be sure, there were French pirates at the Pirate Republic of Nassau, but it was an English pirate project. And that's going to be the biggest, most momentous explosion of piracy that the world has ever seen. It builds a reputation. But while the English have Port Royal, the French have Tortuga. Where the English have St. Mary's, the French have Reunion Island. Reunion was a prison colony early on, and some of the very first French inhabitants of Reunion Island were mutineers. They were arrested, convicted, and sent to this tiny little island in the Indian Ocean. And for a few years more, the French continued to dump rogue privateers and mutineers and pirates there. This was a punishment, but it also served as kind of a resource for France, maybe a stockpile. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. After ships rounded the Cape of Good Hope, often they had fewer men than they had started out with. Were that the case, you could always stop off at Reunion Island and pick up, I don't know, half a dozen men who knew their business at sea. You don't want too many criminals on board, but in a pinch they could be useful and maybe earn a pardon. The other benefit to a prison colony, something that the English had figured out with Port Royal, was the plausible deniability it granted. Were, for example, a crew of less than reputable English sailors to show up with a ship full of illicitly obtained goods which they wanted to trade for illegally obtained slaves, well, were that to happen in this hypothetical situation, the French government would be able to almost legitimately claim a complete lack of knowledge or accountability. When ships from, say, Port Dauphin stopped over at Reunion Island and profited off of all of these illegal trades, they didn't know anything about the origin of these goods, and in the end, they paid the French government their due. So when Henry Every showed up at Reunion Island with a ship full of stolen Mughal goods, and when he traded them with the French on Reunion Island for a bunch of slaves, he was indirectly helping to fund the war against England. Now that wasn't the goal, but it was a side effect. Every's goal was simple, and an often under-discussed aspect of pirate lore. He was laundering his money. Most of their shares were made up of hard coin, and those coins were stamped with Mughal markings. But there were also a great deal of trade goods on board, you know, spices and teas and silks and dyes, all of which was just as incriminating as gold and silver. Were they to show up at any English port, or honestly most ports around the world, they would have been arrested. The only loot that wouldn't get them immediately arrested would be raw jewels, not the jewelry, that would have been of a distinctive design, but raw gemstones, pearls, and diamonds, mainly. 
Naturally, they would raise suspicions, especially in the hands of some scruffy sailor, but they weren't damning evidence. But at Reunion Island, the pirates traded a ton of their plunder for slaves. Now, first of all, obviously, that's pretty morally reprehensible, and Henry Every was happy to engage, but if we put that aside and looked at the financial aspect of this transaction, well, it must have been kind of nerve-wracking for the pirates. Silver coins aren't going to go bad, but human beings can die. And slaves, often kept in completely inhumane conditions on their slave ships, died pretty frequently. But even beyond the money-laundering aspect, there was still a financial upside here. These were illegally obtained slaves that were going to be sold on the black market. There was a lot of profit potential in this transaction. So if we were to take Henry Every's 2,000 pounds sterling and convert it into modern money, according to the British National Archives, it would be worth well over 200,000 pounds. That was equivalent to over 20,000 days' work, or about 60 years for a skilled tradesman. For the average crewman, they were looking at about 75,000 modern American dollars. It wasn't a fortune, but if they budgeted and invested their money wisely, it was enough to set them up for life. Which should have been enough for the pirates of the fancy. But it wasn't. After Reunion Island, the pirates went radio silent. We don't hear anything about them as they round the Cape of Good Hope and sail into the southern Atlantic. Their next stop was at Sao Tome, a Portuguese possession popular for picking up supplies on the voyage from South Africa to the West Indies. Which is why the fancy was there. They collected wood and water, they bought wine and foodstuffs, you know, the usual, but they had plenty of money to pay for all of that. And yet, they didn't. Instead of cash or trade, the governor at Sao Tome was handed a, quote, bill of exchange drawn on the bank of Aldgate Pump, signed by Timothy Tugmutton and Simon Whifflingpin. End quote. Now, English speakers will probably recognize these instantly as nonsense words, but for a Portuguese-speaking governor, they were less obviously nonsense. Especially because, due to the war, the Portuguese were expected to aid the English in any way possible. This was a scam, yes, but it was also a... a prank. Both of those names, Timothy Tugmutton and Simon Whifflingpin, were well-known satirical names in 1696. A Tugmutton was a muttonmonger, a butcher, or a meat salesman. And there was actually a little market on the outskirts of London called Tugmutton Common. But it also meant a big fat guy. And there were a ton of big fat guy characters on the London stage in the 1690s named Tugmutton. Similarly, Whiffling Pin was a cliché that appears in all sorts of literary examples, most famously in Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. So these were big red flags, but the Portuguese did not notice. But then there was Aldgate Pump. Now that's something that some of you will already know about. 
Aldgate Pump is a real place. It's a very old water pump in London. In its original form, as a well, it dates back to the 1270s. The Aldgate in question was the eastern gate of the city wall of London, and that goes way back, I think, back to Londinium and the Roman Empire in Britain. Traditionally, that eastern gate was the dividing line between central London and eastern London, or the East End. Once that wall was no longer practical, that pump that had previously been just inside the Ald Gate served as the dividing marker before the East End. But more to the point here, an Aldgate pump was, and might even still today be, an expression that meant a, a bad check or, more commonly, a scam. E.T. Fox sums this episode up nicely. He writes, quote, One is tempted to imagine the smirks which must have crept across the pirates' faces as they loaded their supplies bought with the bill, or the exasperation of the governor when he tried in turn to pass the bill on to an English sea captain, as he tried to explain the joke to the hapless foreigner. End quote. One could take issue with Fox calling the governor of a Portuguese island a foreigner on his own island, but the point does stand. This was a con job, but it was also funny and it was clever. It was the kind of story that, whenever any average English man or woman, certainly anybody from London, especially from the East End, when they heard this story, well, they would have had similar smirks. They'd have gotten a chuckle out of it. Just the English pulling the wool over some Portuguese governor's eyes. It would have warmed their hearts just a bit more to Henry Every and his men. The crew of the Fancy, about 160 men at this point, well, they would be set for life. If, that is, they could get away with it. Each of them had about a lifetime's wages in their pocket, and if they could keep it, if they could find a plot of land somewhere, or maybe, if they were so inclined, buy a ship, they might have a very comfortable life indeed. The pirates made one last stop at another island in the South Atlantic to pick up some turtles. It's one of those islands where sea turtles congregate, and the pirates filled their holds. And with that, they were ready to sail across the Atlantic to the West Indies. Next time we will follow the fancy to the West Indies and begin our look at New Providence Island and Nassau. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Let him live on in legend tonight.